Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Derek Sibley tells us about the first Duke of Wellington. Known to his soldiers as Old Nosey and his political opponents as the Iron Duke. A few things you may not know about Arthur Wellesley, first Duke of Wellington. First thing you may not know is that is not the name he was born with. One of the nicknames used by his soldiers was Old Nosey. Now, everyone knows something about Wellington something about his struggles with Bonaparte, maybe some of the battles in the Peninsular War, Waterloo, and so on. I'm not going to talk about the battles, except to mention them in passing, or to use them to put something else into context. What I am going to do is to outline his military career. I'm going to describe some parts of his life in politics, go on to his personal relationships, make some observations about his character, and then finally come to the end of his life, his last days. Uh, so the beginning was May Day, the 1st of May, 1769, when Arthur Wesley, you know, the spelling W-E-S-L-E-Y, that was the family name at the time, was born in Dublin to Anne Hill, the daughter of Lord Dungannon, and the wife of Eric Wesley, first Earl of Mornington. He was a member of the Irish period, sat in the Irish House of Lords. He was a bit of an eccentric. He was a musical prodigy, professor of music at Trinity College, Dublin also an amateur architect, and he died when Arthur was 12. The Wesleys were a Protestant family of English origin, and they had a family estate at Dangan Castle in County Meath, and a townhouse in Dublin. Arthur was one of seven brothers, two of whom died before he was born, and he was the middle one of the remaining five. So in order of seniority, it was Richard, William, then Anne, the only daughter, uh, well, there was another daughter, Mary, but she died at 21. So Richard, William, Mary, then Arthur, followed by Gerald and Henry. At the age of 12, Arthur was sent to Eton, but he was a poor scholar and no sportsman, and he was removed three years later in favour of his younger brother, Henry. And he went to live with his widowed mother in Brussels, and he was sent to the Royal Academy of Equitation at Angers. This was to prepare for a military career, which his mother thought was all he was fit for, referring to him as her awkward son, Arthur, food for powder and nothing more. And later, when in his first uniform, she said, anyone can see he has not the cut of a soldier. A bit wrong, really. Angers was more of a finishing school for gentlemen than a military academy. Arthur learned dancing, essential accomplishment for somebody in his position at that time, fencing, horsemanship, French grammar, mathematics, and military fortifications. Some of those may have been useful, I suppose, later on. He did become a very good horseman, and he hunted his whole life. Richard, the eldest brother, changed the name to Wellesley, a former form, in 1798. From now on, I'll refer to Arthur as Wellington, though he didn't get the title until 1814. He was considered a dull and unintelligent boy compared to his brothers, who were all high achievers. Four of them became peers, and Gerald became a bishop. On 1786, he returned to England aged 17, and his brother Richard, who was then a junior lord of the treasury, used his influence to purchase him a commission as an ensign in the 73rd Highland Regiment of Foot, then serving in India. Over the next five years, Wellington changed regiments four times. It seems that his active participation in any of those is pretty unlikely. But in 1793, he bought himself a commission, borrowing money from his brother Richard, as a major in the 33rd Regiment of Foot. This was the regiment which was renamed at the Order of Queen Victoria in 1853, the year after Wellington's death, renamed the Duke of Wellington's Regiment, which remained until 2004, until the Defence Review 
It was amalgamated with two other regiments to form the Yorkshire Regiment. Also in 1793, he was courting Kitty Packenham, known as the Longford Lily, or the Belle of Dublin, the attractive daughter of the late second Baron Longford. She was three years younger than Arthur, and the families were connected by marriage. Both had townhouses in Dublin, and Dangan Castle was about halfway between Packenham Hall and Dublin, so the Packhams will certainly spend some time with the Wesleys in transit. Kitty's father was dead, so Wellington had to ask her elder brother, Tom, for her hand in marriage. He refused. He turned him down because the Wesleys were heavily in debt, and Tom was not impressed with Wellington's rank of major, which Tom's brother had purchased at the age of 17. The rejection was pretty painful for Wellington, so he determined to take soldiering seriously. He burnt his violin, and he purchased a lieutenant colonelcy, becoming the commander of the 33rd Regiment. In 1794, the regiment went to Flanders, where he saw his first action at Boxtel. He was disillusioned by the poor command and the worst resources of the army, but he later recalled that it taught him what not to do. In 1796, he went with the regiment to India. His career in India was boosted by his brother Richard, who was now governor general, and younger brother Henry was his secretary. But was this favoritism? In 1799, Wellington participated in the defeat of Tipu Sultan of Mysore, who reports had indicated was in league with the French in India. After the defeat of Tipu, various troublesome bands of brigands were roaming about and had to be dealt with. And in one operation, a charge of four regiments of cavalry, must have been quite a sight, was led by Wellington himself. In 1802, he was promoted to Major General in the Indian Army, aged only 33. In 1803, he successfully commanded an army against the Maratha Confederacy in central India, uh, which threatened the East India Company's expansion. Wellington thought his greatest military achievement was at Assay, not Waterloo. Assay is also interesting because nearly all of Wellington's battles and victories were defensive battles. Usually, an attacker requires a numerical superiority to take a strong defensive position. And Wellington had a very good eye for ground when riding with a companion he would often play a game of trying to guess what lay over the next hill. So he would select in advance a number of possible defensive <laughs> positions on dominating ground, often with a reverse slope, forcing the enemy to attack uphill, his own troops, Wellington's troops that is, being on a reverse slope, protected from artillery fire, but the enemy exposed to artillery fire, there will be a final volley, a downhill charge with the bayonet, followed by a pursuit. So the difference about Assay is that it was a rare attacking battle. He and a separate force under a subordinate commander, Colonel James Stevenson, were pursuing a Maratha cavalry-based force threatening to raid into Hyderabad. Wellington had 4,500 East India Company troops, plus the 19th Light Dragoons and two regiments of Scottish infantry. The Maratha force was reinforced with modernized infantry and artillery and was about 50,000 strong. On the 21st of September, Wellington planned for his two forces to merge and converge on the enemy position on the 24th of September. But he ran into the Marathas six miles further south than he thought, and thinking they would move off, he decided to attack at once without waiting for Stevenson. Artillery caused a large number of casualties in the East India Company force uh, but the Maratha cavalry force was largely ineffective. Bayonet and cavalry charges saw them off, forced them to retreat. Wellington's troops were too exhausted to pursue. They did capture a large quantity of stores, ammunition, and 98 cannon. 805, Wellington was waiting in the colonial office in London to see Castlereagh. And also in the room was a naval officer with one arm. It was Nelson, and it was the only occasion on which they met. In 1806, his rank of Major General was confirmed in the British Army. In 1808, he was promoted to Lieutenant General in April, and in July, sailed in command of a force to Portugal. He had no experience of fighting experienced first-class troops in Europe. 
But he was in fact recalled to face a court of inquiry into the generous terms of an armistice signed with the French after Vimiero. But he was completely exonerated and returned to Portugal. In July 1809, he fought the Battle of Talavera, which he thought was his hardest battle. The French were 40,000 strong, and the British-Portuguese-Spanish alliance was about 20,000. The French attacked and were shot to pieces by artillery. The British cavalry charged out of control as usual and lost heavily. The Allies suffered around 5,000 casualties, a quarter of their force, and the French about 7,000, but they were forced to withdraw. In 1809, he was made Baron Duro and Viscount Wellington and elevated to Earl of Wellington in 1812. Marcus, later the same year in August, in recognition of the Battle of Salamanca, which he won, a battle in which a Frenchman said that Wellington beat 40,000 men in 40 minutes. Why is he the Duke of Wellington? Well, Richard thought that the Wellesleys originally came from Somerset. So he looked around and apparently discovered a manor in a parish of Wellington was available. Also reasonably close to the family name and he arranged it. So Wellington became Viscount Wellington of Talavera and of Wellington and Baron Dura of Wellesley in the county of Somerset. Bit of a mouthful really. The Order of the Golden Fleece, which had never been before awarded to a non-Catholic or to a non-member of the Spanish royal family. The British government awarded him the military gold medal. In 1813, Wellington invaded France in October, having shifted his base from Lisbon and the Porto to Santander. In 1814, after heavy defeats at Leipzig and Victoria, Napoleon abdicated in favour of his son, which was not accepted by the Allies, who demanded unconditional abdication. So he was then exiled and Louis XVIII was restored to the throne. In this year, Wellington was out riding when a stray musket ball struck his sword hilt and drove it violently against his thigh. This wasn't serious, but it was quite painful and it stopped him galloping about as usual for about a week. Uh, under the Treaty of Shomos, signed between Austria, Russia, Prussia and UK, it required Napoleon to give up all his conquests and remain emperor, during which the Allies will continue the war. Napoleon refused. Wellington was promoted to field marshal and he was created Duke in May of that year. In 1815, in March, Napoleon has escaped. Wellington was offered the command of an army in Flanders and by the summer had an allied army of 80,000 supported by Blücher with 130,000 Prussians. And the Duke of Richmond asked Wellington if she should go ahead with her ball. Wellington replied, Duchess, you may give your ball with the greatest safety without fear of interruption. At midnight, he told the Duke of Richmond, Napoleon has humbugged me by God. He has gained 24 hours march on me. But you have to admire his cool. He had made his dispositions. He remained at the ball, but he did have to ask to borrow a map. After Waterloo, Napoleon abdicated and was exiled again. The first man in Britain to know about the victory at Waterloo was Nathan Rothschild whose agent had arrived from Ostend before Wellington's dispatches got to London. Under the Treaty of 1815, Treaty of Paris, France was to be occupied by 150,000 Allied troops for five years until reparations had been paid. Wellington was appointed CNC. Then he broke up their bank loans with Bering Brothers to enable the payment to be completed in three years. So the treaty was wound up in 1818 and Austria, Prussia and Russia all made Wellington field marshal in their armies. He was presented with eight field marshal's batons, and these can all be seen at Absolute House. And he also received porcelain table services from Austria, France, Saxony and Prussia. The latter from Prussia was consisted of 470 pieces. Those are also on display at Absolute House. He was given by the British government £600,000 to buy an estate. And he looked at Upark, but he turned it down on the grounds that the approach was too steep for his horses. He did buy a Stratfield Say in 1817 for £263,000, and he bought Apsley House from his brother Richard for 42000 in 1818. So he had a bit of change left over, really. Waterloo Day in 1817, the 18th of June, coincided with the opening of Waterloo Bridge. And there was a Waterloo Fair held on the banks of the Thames. 
and there's a 202-gun salute. Now, bearing in mind that the sovereign gets 21 guns on the sovereign's birthday, why was it 202? It sounds a bit excessive. It was the number of cannon captured at Waterloo. In spite of Wellington's well-known reference to his soldiers as the scum of the earth, he was actually very proud of their achievements. And when the small stature of his soldiers was remarked upon, he replied, they would find none who fight so well. He also commented before Waterloo, and referring to a red coat, it all depends on that article, whether we do the business or not. Give me enough, and I am sure. He paid attention to the circumstances under which soldiers campaigned and required all officers to know the weighted equipment the red coat carried, musket and ammunition, bayonet and scabbard, haversack, rations, full water bottle, and so on and so forth. Scum of the earth, a well-known expression he's alleged to have used or did use, uh, was a favorite expression of his. For example, it was used by him after the Mary Ann Clark affair. Mary Ann Clark was the mistress of the Duke of York, who was the commander-in-chief of the Force Guards, and she was found to be selling under-the-counter commissions, promotions, and exchanges. After Ciudad Rodrigo, Wellington heard that six soldiers had been dumped out of doors, so he rode 30 miles to their bivouac, ordered them to be carried into the officers' quarters, and went back the next day to check. Found they'd been chucked out again, had been finally brought in, and the officers cashiered. After Waterloo, Wellington spent many hours visiting the wounded and making sure they were cared for. And in 1813, he had provided tents for the troops, who until then normally bivouacked in the open, as well as prefabricated hospitals. The tents were to be carried on army mules, and the officers whose baggage went on the mules were ordered to find other transport for their baggage. However, he did maintain flogging in the army, unlike the French army. He kept it really as a deterrent. The difference between the two armies was that the French was a conscript army, and therefore conscripted from all classes across the nation. The British army was not a conscript army and comprised those escaping unemployment, prison, harsh conditions, poverty, to avoid responsibilities of fatherhood and so on. Wellington once said, I hate that cheering. If you once allow soldiers to express an opinion, they may on some other occasion hiss instead of cheering. Napoleon and Wellington only commanded armies against each other in the Netherlands. When Napoleon was in Spain, Wellington was in England, and this may have led Napoleon to underestimate Wellington's abilities. Napoleon said of Wellington, he equaled him in everything and excelled him in one thing only, prudence. Wellington thought that Napoleon's presence on the battlefield was worth 40,000 troops. And when asked who was the greatest general of the age, he said, in this age, in past ages, in any age, Napoleon. Wellington, unlike Napoleon, never lost a major battle, but he was defeated at the siege of Burgos in September, October 1812. He has been besieging the French-occupied fortress at Burgos, but unaccountably only had three siege guns with him, though there were a hundred in Madrid. The French repulsed every attempt to seize the fortress, resulting in Wellington's withdrawal. So to what can we attribute his success? operational flexibility, what he called light and quick. That means the ability to move around pretty quickly, but his army was not as good as that the French army was. Uh, so operational flexibility and the ability to outthink the enemy. He had developed an intelligence system which was far more sophisticated than any other. And he had a political understanding which allowed him to balance British strategic priorities with the demands of the Allies. He also had a certain amount of luck. The 24 hours before Waterloo saw torrential rain over the battlefield, which became a quagmire. And Napoleon, who had intended to launch his assault, was asked by his chief artillery officer to delay it because the cannon up to their axles in mud could not be got into position in time. So the assault was delayed until midday. Napoleon also made a, a strategic error, really, he had just given Blucher a bloody nose at Ligny, and he assumed that Blucher would withdraw east along his line of communication. But Blucher, two wings of his army were pretty well intact, central taking a bit of battering, withdrew northwards on an axis parallel to Wellington's, and he joined Wellington at Mont Saint-Jean later that day, and through threatening Napoleon's right flank, brought an end to the campaign. 
As a commander, Wellington was restricted by the politicians. The government often failed to provide enough cash to pay the soldiers and to buy food for an army which was on half rations before Talavera and was sometimes starving, and also money to pay for the wagons and oxen and mules and their drivers. There is a letter to the Foreign Office written from central Spain in August 1812. It reads as follows. Gentlemen, whilst marching from Portugal to a position which commands the approach to Madrid and the French forces, my officers have been diligently complying with your requests, which have been sent by HM ship from London to Lisbon and thence by dispatch rider to our headquarters. We have enumerated our saddles, bridles, tents and tent poles and all manner of sundry items for which His Majesty's government holds me accountable. I have dispatched reports on the character, wit and spleen of every officer. Each item and every farthing has been accounted for with two regrettable exceptions for which I beg your indulgence. Unfortunately, the sum of one shilling and ninepence remains unaccounted for in one infantry battalion's petty cash account and there has been a hideous massive number of jars of raspberry jam issued to one cavalry regiment during a sandstorm in Western Spain. This reprehensible carelessness may be related to the pressure of circumstance since we are at war with France, a fact which may come as a bit of a surprise to you gentlemen in Whitehall. This brings me to my present purpose, which is to request elucidation of my instructions from His Majesty's government that I may better understand why I'm dragging an army over these barren plains. I construe that perforce, it must be one of two alternative duties as given below. I shall pursue either one with the best of my ability, but I cannot do both. One, to train an army of uniformed British clerks in Spain for the benefit of the accountants and copy boys in London. Or perchance, two, to see to it that the forces of Napoleon are driven out of Spain. Your most obedient servant, Wellington. That letter is a spoof, but it has captured, I think, Wellington's frustration, exasperation and contempt for those in London who thought they knew how to conduct a campaign overseas. Perhaps this was an early example of the blob. He also insisted that the army did not live off the land as Napoleon's did, uh, this made the French soldiers very unpopular, but it did make them rather more mobile with a shorter logistics train. Apart from the limitations of the cavalry, Wellington also suffered from a paucity of artillery. At that time, companies of artillery, they were called companies, not batteries, were simply officers and men with their personal arms. When required for operations, they simply drew the guns from a gun park. Horses were bought in, drivers were hired. This is a problem because both horses and fodder were in short supply in Spain, and the horses were often of very poor quality, sometimes replaced by mules or oxen. The latter slow moving, but both of them are much less demanding to feed than horses were. The drivers also were civilians and not amenable to service discipline. The horse artillery, whose role was to support the cavalry, did have fully integrated guns and were much more efficient and very much more mobile. Wellington's military success was also aided by his access to naval power. The supremacy of the Royal Navy gave him flexibility never enjoyed by the French. When Cadiz was besieged in 1810, he was able to move three British and one Portuguese battalion by sea from Lisbon, followed two months later by a squadron of dragoons and their horses and equipment and 400,000 pounds of salt provisions. Further supplies of meat, biscuits, spirits, oats and hay were moved from Britain. The Navy also moved all the bullion and gold to supply both Wellington and the guerrillas. And by 1811, the Spanish and Portuguese had been given 155 pieces of artillery, over 200,000 muskets and over 60 million cartridges. Supplies for the British included greatcoats, shirts, suits of clothing, gaiters, socks, haversack, shoes, caps, brushes, combs, and even boot blacking. Turning now to his political career, in 1790, Wellington took over from Richard as the MP for the Irish borough of Trim in the Irish House of Commons. 
And he made his maiden speech there in 1792, where he spoke approvingly of the removal of the legislation which barred Catholics from public office. In 1794, his political activity was abandoned temporarily by posting with his regiment to Flanders and then on to India. And on his return in 1806, he was elected as the MP for Rye, which was lost in October 1806 when dissolved by Parliament. And he became the MP for Mitchell in Cornwall. And that was disenfranchised by the Reform Act. So then he became the MP for Newport in the Isle of Wight. In 1807, he became secretary to the Duke of Richmond, who was the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland. But he made a proviso, and that was that the post would not jeopardize any future opportunities in the army. The post was suspended when he was given command of a brigade in an expedition to Copenhagen to keep the Danish fleet out of Napoleon's hands. Richard had been offered the foreign office, but turned it down. William was the secretary to the Admiralty. Henry was the secretary of the Treasury. 1814, Wellington became the Duke of Wellington and was appointed ambassador to France. And in Paris, he bought the house of Napoleon's sister, Rue Faubourg Saint-Honoré, which is still the residence of the British ambassador and the embassy there. He spent two weeks in, with the Prince of Orange, inspecting frontier fortresses in the Low Countries, and found many advantageous positions for defence. Wellington and the occupation of France became unpopular with the disbanded Bonapartists, and the disappointed royalists. In 1815, he took over from Castlereagh at the Congress of Vienna, which was an attempt to establish a long-term peace plan for Europe, restore international boundaries, and resize and rebalance countries to make war less likely. He attempted to persuade the Congress to abandon the slave trade, and the clause was included in the treaty, which was signed nine days before Waterloo. In 1818, at the Congress of Aix la Chapelle, met to end the occupation of France, the reparations had by then been paid off, and Wellington returned to England. The PM, Lord Liverpool, was in a quandary about what to do with him, so he invited him to join the government. Wellington was uncertain, but was persuaded by Castlereagh to do so, and he became the Master General of the Ordnance, responsible for artillery, engineers, and military fortifications. In 1819, the Waterloo prize money was distributed. Two pounds, 10 shillings for privates, 60,000 pounds for Wellington, but he returned two thirds of it. In 1820, he was also negotiating with Queen Caroline's representative in abortive divorce proceedings from George IV, who's now the king. Caroline and George had met in 1794, married in 1795, although George was already illegally married to Maria Fitzherbert, a Catholic, and they separated in 1796, shortly after the birth of their only child. Caroline was very popular in the country, so Wellington became unpopular, and the mob at one point tried to drag him from his horse. Now, if I were to ask anybody here who formed the Metropolitan Police Force, you would all say it was Robert Peel, which indeed it was. In 1829, there was no formed police force that we would recognize before then. It had been the Bow Street Runners, founded by a magistrate, Henry Fielding, in 1749, but there were only six of them, and they were just the enforcement agents at that time for the Westminster magistrates. They were disbanded in 1839 and joined the Metropolitan Police. Wellington knew that soldiers do not make good policemen, and the populace does not like being policed by soldiers with bayonets. Just two years after the Peterloo Massacre, in August 1820, Caroline died solving the problem of her divorce. So in 1822, Wellington replaced Castlereagh at the Congress of Vienna because Castlereagh had committed suicide by cutting his own throat. Congress was to decide the Italian question, which was the Austrian occupation of northern Italy, the Greek question to do with the belligerent rights of Greece, and the Spanish question, which was the proposed French intervention in Spain. Well, England wasn't much interested in the first two, but it's obviously adamantly opposed to the last. Wellington fell out with Canning, who had replaced Castlereagh as foreign secretary, and he fell out with him over the secession of the South American states from Portugal and Spain, because he, 
Wellington felt it wrong at the same time to suppress the wishes for Irish independence. And he's also concerned about Catholic emancipation, of which he was in favor, but Canning won. In 1827, the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, had a stroke. Canning and Wellington were both contenders, and the King invited Canning to form a government. Wellington refused to serve, resigned from the cabinet, and resigned as Master General of the Ordnance and as Commander-in-Chief. And he warned George IV not to appoint Canning. Later the same year, in August, Canning died, and he was replaced by Lord Goderich, who was a government leader in the Lords, who formed a weak coalition government. Wellington became CNC again. Because it was a weak government, Goderich had to resign five months later, and Wellington was appointed Prime Minister in 1828. He did make one condition, though, and that was that the government would remain neutral on the question of Catholic emancipation. In 1828, O'Connell, leader of the Catholic Association, was elected on the 5th of July to represent County Clare. But being a Catholic could not take his seat. Wellington feared that others so elected could also be deprived of a seat. So he persuaded George IV to allow Parliament to debate the issue. Wellington ensured the passage of the bill removed the restriction. This was unpopular with the King and with many of the public. As Prime Minister in 1828, after the death of Lord Liverpool, he was opposed to the Reform Bill and became a hate figure in the mob-stoned Apsley House. The winter of 1828-1829 saw severe economic distress in the country, uh, there was a depression in industry after the war, collapse of agricultural prices, and the hated Enclosure Acts. Wellington refused the advice of his agent to enclose a common near Stratfield Say. He had been instrumental in the founding of King's College London, and the Earl of Winchelsea had published a letter suggesting that Wellington had associated with the founding in order to obscure his real opinions about Catholic emancipation. Wellington challenged Winchelsea to a duel, which was fought at Battersea. Winchelsea did not fire, and Wellington aimed to miss. I suppose honour was satisfied. On the 2nd of November 1830, following an uncompromising speech, Wellington refused parliamentary reform. On the 16th of November, the government was defeated, and Wellington resigned. He was very unpopular, and the mob broke the windows of Apsley House. In 1831, Russell introduced the Reform Bill, and at that time there were about 200 common seats which were owned by 100 landowning peers. For example, Lord Newcastle owned nine, and he evicted any of his tenants who voted the wrong way. There was no secret ballot, of course. There were also some very small boroughs. Old Sarum in 1831 was represented by two members of Parliament, but only had 11 voters. The new industrial cities of the north were largely unrepresented. There had been calls for reform earlier, but the pressure now increased. Wellington held deeply held conservative convictions about this, having observed European politics at first hand, and he thought reform equivalent to revolution. But in June 1832, the Great Reform Act became law. In 1834, Wellington was offered the premiership again, but he refused, but he did agree to act for months for Peel, who was abroad. In 1835, he supported Peel in the House of Lords of the passage of the Corn Laws, and Peel was leading a minority government, so was therefore outvoted and defeated in the Commons on a separate issue, and he resigned. Later that year, Victoria became sovereign and assumed the throne at the age of 18. In 1838, after Melbourne was defeated, Victoria asked Wellington to be Prime Minister. He declines on the grounds of age, he was 69, and also on the grounds of deafness, and he recommended Peel. He also declined the Foreign Secretary post. Three days after being appointed, Peel resigned over the issue of the Queen's household. Most of her ladies-in-waiting were Whigs, and he thought they influenced her. She refused to do what he asked. In 1841, Melbourne government lost a confidence vote and Peel was elected with a majority of 91. In 1845, the Irish potato crop failed and Peel wanted to repeal the Corn Laws totally. Cabinet was split. Wellington tried to persuade the landowners and the Lords to support Peel's bill, but they didn't do so. 
and Peel resigned on the 6th of December, but was recalled only two weeks later on the 20th. And then in May 1846, the Commons did repeal the coinage, but now there was trouble in Ireland and Peel was brought down by the coercion bill. Russell became the prime minister. Wellington declined a place in government, but he did pledge to support the Whigs whenever possible. The Queen asked him to continue as C&C, and he agreed that he would do so as long as he would no longer act as the party leader in the House of Lords. In 1848, Fergus O'Connor, a Nottingham OP, whose father coincidentally had been the last tenant at Dangan Castle, planned a march with a petition to Parliament. The march, of course, being fully charted. Wellington planned the security with the army and 100,000 recruited special constables. O'Connor was talked out of the march by the chief of police. I think probably O'Connor could see that he wasn't going to get past the army and 100,000 special constables. And the petition was delivered by cab. Wellington then left the army at the age of 77. His political life had been controversial. He had been used to issuing orders and having them instantly obeyed. And he thought that orders questioned and debated he regarded that as disloyalty or hostility. He was an autocrat, not really suited to politics, but he did hold together a disparate international coalition in the field. He did serve in the cabinet for 18 years. He was prime minister twice and refused it twice, and he was foreign secretary twice. He had also been appointed constable of the Tower of London, ranger of the Royal Parks, Lord Lieutenant of Hampshire, Chancellor of Oxford University, Constable of Dover Castle, and Lord Warden of the Sanctuaries. And the latter gave him the most satisfaction, really, and Warmer Castle, the residence, became his favourite home. He had held the highest military and political offices, CNC and PM, very unusual in this country. And I think he's probably the only professional soldier in modern times to have headed a government. He held an intractable opposition to political reform, which he thought would lead to revolution, but he adhered to his convictions regardless of personal or professional cost. And on seeing the first reformed House of Commons, he's alleged to have said, I have never seen so many bad hats in all my life. He was suspicious of the expenditure of public money on railways and on military inventions. And some considered his conservative influence when he was commander-in-chief to have been partly responsible for the poor performance of the army in the Crimea. He was quite ready, though, to adopt innovations in his personal life. For example, he installed radiator central heating and flushing lavatories at Stratfield Say. He received an enormous amount of mail and he used preprinted some reply slips for some of the most common inquiries. The post-war industrial and agricultural slump resulted in a large number of unemployed veterans and there was public unrest and Wellington became unpopular. He was a close advisor to Victoria, who was, however, extremely displeased with him when he opposed a bill she wanted to naturalise Albert and give him rank and precedence after her for his lifetime. He also voted for an allowance for Albert of £30,000 when Victoria wanted 50000 she would not invite him to her wedding, but she did ultimately relent. Turning now to his personal life, after rejection by Kitty Packenham in 1794, Wellington wrote to Kitty before embarking for Flanders, saying, if something did occur to make Kitty and her brother change their minds, my mind will still remain the same. It is a commitment by an honourable man, I suppose. In India, European ladies were in short supply, and they were all married. But Wellington was involved with a number, Mrs. McIntyre, Mrs. Gordon, Mrs. Stevenson, Mrs. Fries. And the Captain Ehlers commented, Colonel Wellesley had at that time a very susceptible heart, particularly towards, I am sorry to say, married ladies. In 1805, he returned to England and through an intermediary, Lady Olivia Sparrow, he renewed his acquaintance with Kitty, who by then was engaged and had suffered an emotional breakdown. Wellington was enjoying himself in London and elsewhere with several ladies, but he wrote to Kitty to propose. Kitty broke off her engagement and even though uneasy, accepted. Wellington traveled to Ireland. They met, married in Dublin in less than a week. He is said to have remarked to his brother, Gerald, 
the clergyman who was going to marry them. She has grown ugly, by Jove. She was rumoured to have had smallpox, but I'm not sure that's true. Wellington was 37 and Kitty was 34. So why did he marry her? Was it pride after a rejection? Was it an honourable man after his promise to her? The marriage was never happy. Wellington was soon and continually annoyed by her mismanagement of the household budget and by her debts. They had nothing in common except the children. His letters to her from Spain were short, terse and infrequent. She adored him, but she could not bring herself to take any interest in things which were of interest to him. They had nothing in common except the children. Their first son, Arthur, was born in 1807 and Charles in 1808. In 1830, Kitty's health deteriorated, but her relations with her husband improved, and he was very attentive and kind to her until she died at Apsley in April 1831, after which crowd attacked Apsley in sympathy with the Duchess. Wellington was now the most eligible widower in England. He had certainly been unfaithful. There were rumours in India and in the peninsula, both before and after his marriage. He had become involved in 1808 with Harriet Wilson, a well-known London courtesan, who's also known amongst his contemporaries as the Beau, that's B-E-A-U. There were others. Wellington thought about not a sensible woman. She was not a romantic, possibly the only woman to ever refuse an introduction to Byron. She was interested in political discussion. Many of these were probably just dalliances or flirtations. We will never really know. But we do know that on the evening of the 15th of June, which is the night before the Battle of Quatre Bras, he gave Georgiana Lennox a small miniature of himself, which he had commissioned. Another close attachment was with Lady Frances Webster, and was a fair in the early 1820s with society beauty Lady Charlotte Greville. He also wrote 390 letters over 17 years to Miss Anna Maria Jenkins. She was a harpist and a religious zealot who had first written to Wellington in 1834. They only met about 12 times. They had absolutely nothing in common. Wellington was a very dedicated correspondent, but why did he keep it up? He valued the type of relationship he had with Harriet Abathnot, intelligent, with an interest in politics, and he could talk to her as he could not to Kitty. It was widely believed that the interest was sexual, but her diaries published in 1950 confirmed that it was not. She and her husband Charles were close friends of Wellington and after her death from cholera in 1834 Charles went to live at Apsley until he died in 1850. Another relationship in his later years was with Angela Burdett Coutts, daughter of a politician and granddaughter of the banker Thomas Coutts, whose fortune she inherited after his second wife died. She was the richest heiress in England and a philanthropist. She and Wellington were close friends after both her parents had died, and she proposed marriage to him in 1847, and she was aged 32, and he was aged 77. He refused because of the age gap, and they remained friends until his death. Wellington wrote her 842 letters. Perhaps his truest love was for an American, Mrs. Mary Ann Patterson, whom he met in London before Waterloo. She's the only woman for whom he begged favours, including risking his own reputation by introducing her to the Prince Regent. After failing to get him to the altar, which he would not contemplate whilst Kitty was still alive, she married Richard in 1825, much to Wellington's chagrin. Harriet, Countess of Granville in Paris with her husband after Waterloo, wrote in her diary, the fact is that I really believe the Duke finds so few women that do not make up to him. So one visitor in London in 1848 was amazed to see well-bred ladies stretch out a hand to touch the hero as he passed down the stairs. Lady Georgiana Fane loved him her whole life and preferred to die a spinster if she could not marry him. After Kitty died, a dozen ladies pressed their claims, but Wellington preferred his freedom. He thought men generally inferior to women, which is perhaps surprising at age when women were so subordinated, and perhaps surprising from a man like him. He gave away a number of his friend's daughters and said, I have an immoderate number of godchildren. At 80, 
He was out with the Harriers, shooting pheasants at Stratford, say, riding 20 miles a day and walking in the dark with his pretty ladies. Probably by now got some idea of his character. He never secured support by sinecures and he did not delegate. He thought that if he himself did not direct matters, things would go wrong. When acting for Peel, when Peel was out of the country in 1834, he was the Premier at number 10. He held the Home Office, the Foreign Office, the Colonial Office, and Horse Guards. He had an enormous correspondence, which he always answered promptly himself. He had a complete lack of pride. On one occasion in the peninsula, a staff officer was sent to a large estate to procure forage. He came back empty-handed, and when asked why, he said, I was told I would have to bow to the noble owner, and of course I could not. I suppose I must go myself, said Wellington, and in a few days forage came pouring in. How did he do it? Oh, I just bobbed down, he said. He was selfless, scrupulous, incorruptible, of total integrity. He believed in loyalty, duty, the proper order of things. His room at Warmer was small, irregularly shaped, contained a wing armchair, a bed with a horsehair mattress and pillow, some copper cans in the wash basin, a towel horse, a desk, some tables and a bookcase. His virtues were truthfulness, courage, honesty, fairness, simplicity. He had no personal ambition. He twice refused the premiership. Really, his position put him above party and almost above politics. He was devoted to soldiers and they to him because of trust both ways. Old soldiers who greeted him in the street would be given a sovereign from the purse he kept for the purpose. There's no doubt of Wellington's idea of duty. But Napoleon wrote to his brother, never forget that your first duty is to me, your second is to France. Wellington never rested on his laurels. So now we come to the end. Between 1835 and 1847, he had a number of seizures, strokes, and fits. And at the beginning of 1849, the London Standard reported that he had died. Not true. He did die peacefully at Warmer Castle on the 14th of December, 1852, aged 83. Public attitudes had by then softened in spite of his divisive political career. Tennyson described him in a poem as the last great Englishman, which at the time he undoubtedly was. When lying in state at the Royal Hospital in Chelsea, a number of people were crushed to death in the great crowd who attended. There was a grand state funeral. Soldiers from every regiment were in the procession from St. Paul's, and the crowd was estimated at 1.5 million. Uh, there's a description of the cortege. Yet in the end, it was neither like a wake nor anything else anyone had ever known before. After a wet, blustery night, the sun suddenly shone upon a million and a half people lining the route. They were packed together at windows, on rooftops, in trees, to watch the incredible cortege, great dignitaries of state and church in their splendid coaches, marching bands with trumpets and kettle drums, officers carrying the Duke's standard, guidon, banners and bannerols, and 83 Chelsea pensioners who joined the procession on foot at Charing Cross. A black morning coach containing blue mantle and rouge dragon, their brilliant tabards worn over morning cloaks, then the Drake's servants in another morning coach, followed by representatives from the Tower, East India Company, Trinity House, St. Paul's, Board of Ordnance, Oxford University. Prince Albert in a coach and six, Lord Anglesey carrying the Duke's British Army baton, and distinguished foreigners in the batons of their respective countries. Now at last appeared the Ducal coronet, borne by Clarence Sir King of Arms on a black velvet cushion, the pallbearers in two mourning coaches, the band of the Grenadier Guards, and the body placed upon a funeral car drawn by 12 horses and decorated with trophies and heraldic achievements. The hat and sword of the deceased being placed on the coffin, the huge dray horses borrowed from a London brewery were caparisoned in black up to the eyes. There followed the second duke in an immensely long mourning cloak with his assistants, supporters, friends, and relatives. 
Wellesley's and Pakenham's, Salisbury, Tweeddale, Raglan, Berghush, Cowley, Smith, Worcester, Hamilton, Foster, and two of Arthnots. As the morning coaches rolled out of sight, all eyes turned towards the Duke's horse, led by John Mears, his groom. The reversed boots hanging on either side brought tears to many eyes, including the Queen's. There was a subdued murmur, in contrast to the profound silence that had greeted the coffin. In St Paul's, six tall candles stood around the coffin, and these same six tall candles were used again at Churchill's funeral. Catafalque, which you can see at Stratford, say, weighed 18 tons, and it dwarfed the coffin. I think that Wellington would have scorned such ostentation, really. The newspapers were almost unanimous in their emphasis on duty to the crown and country. Wellington had more than once described himself as the retained servant of the sovereign. His death was the passing of an age. He had been born in the age of powdered 18th century elegance, and he died a Victorian wearing a dark frock coat and trousers of a Victorian gentleman in the new world of telegraph communications, newspapers, railways. There are 21 monuments to him. And this is a daughter shot. There's one at Stratfield Say, one in the Blackdown Hills, which if you have the energy, you can climb inside up 232 steps. There's one in a Porto, one is in St. Paul's Cathedral, and there's one of his horse, Copenhagen, at Stratfield. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.